Great, it's lovely to um, be here this evening and to speak on um, this passage from Colossians. We've been looking at the whole book of Colossians for the last few months and we've got as far as chapter 3, so it sounds like we've been going very slowly. Um, We have, but that's because there's so much great stuff in it. So we're looking at chapter 3 today. I'm going to start reading from um, verse 17. So if you've got a Bible, there's always Bibles at the back, so do grab one, but it will appear on the screen as well. Here we go. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that, we will, may open a door, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Okay, so there's quite a lot in that passage, and it's a bit of a meaty one, um, so we're going to get kind of stuck into it fairly quickly. Now, We've been looking this series at what it means to be alive in Jesus Christ. We've been doing that since Easter. We celebrated Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. But actually, if we believe that Jesus is alive, then it should make a difference to the way we live our lives today. It should make a difference to everything about our lives. And so we're answering the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in Christ. And that is the theme, I think, of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, this early Christian um, group of people in the Roman Empire. And he starts his letter back in chapter one, we looked at this a few months ago, with some incredible words about who Jesus is, to set the scene of what it means to be alive in Jesus. We're just going to look at some words from chapter one, if you've got your Bibles, from verse 15. This is saying who Jesus is, why it's so significant that we worship him. He has something amazing to say. Paul says this. He says, the son, Jesus, is, he's got this long list of things he wants to say about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him, so everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all thing, him, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I absolutely love that passage. It's all about Jesus. It is a big, big picture, isn't it? It's it's really, really full-on stuff. This is who Jesus is. This is the guy that we worship. This is the God that we worship. This is the person that we sing songs to. This is the one that we can have a relationship with. This is the one who makes us fully alive. That's exciting stuff, I think. And it's also radical, and it's controversial. Because actually what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the head of everything and he is the center of everything. And so that means that whatever else we might have put as the center of our universe, of our world, maybe it's ourselves, our families, our work, whatever is at the center, actually, no, that gets displaced because Jesus is at the center. It's all about him. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, expanding on that point. He wants to make that point over and over again. Actually, Jesus needs to be at the center, not that other thing, not that other person, not whatever else you've put there. It's about Jesus. And he's doing that not to be harsh, not to be judgmental, but because Paul has found for himself in a personal way that having Jesus at the center brings life in all of its fullness. And he doesn't want the Colossian church, he doesn't want any of us to miss out on the significance of that. He doesn't want us to miss out on the truth and the beauty and the meaning that having Jesus at the center of our lives can bring. And he wants us to share that with the world. So that's the context of what Paul is writing here. And we get to chapter 3, verse 17. He says... Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. He's the one who makes you fully alive. In other words, he's saying, keep Jesus at the center. He's the one who gives you life in all its fullness. Keep persevering. The good news of Jesus will be made known through you, through each one of us. And so for the rest of chapter um, three that we've just, uh, just read, Paul goes on to explain in more detail what that means for household relationships that we find ourselves in. And he looks at three categories. We've just heard them, husbands and wives, children and their parents, and slaves and their masters. And because this is quite a tricky passage, I'm going to completely avoid it and talk about something. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick with the words that Paul has written because I think it's important to get our heads around them and work out what he's trying to say. So, He starts by saying, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Who likes that verse? All the men. What a surprise. I saw those hands go up. I don't like it. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. If I had a cut and paste, if you were allowed to cut and paste the Bible, there would be that and some other passages that I would remove completely. It doesn't fit well with me. I believe in gender equality. Are we right? You know, you're with me? Absolutely. We kind of think this is outdated. What about me too? Isn't this oppressive? Isn't this wrong? Isn't this scandalous to suggest that women should submit to their husbands? 
Is it outdated? Is it, isn't it kind of completely irrelevant? I think it can be easy to see it that way, but I think we need to do some digging. We believe the Bible is authoritative, and we need to therefore work with it. We need to dig deeper. We need to get to grips with what Paul is really trying to say to us in 21st century Surrey. So to start with, a bit of context. When we think about husband and wife relationships, we probably think about our own or the husband and wife relationships of those who are close to us, maybe our parents or other um, friends or whoever that we are in relationship with who has a, a spouse. But that's not what Paul was talking about. It wasn't that kind of relationship that Paul was talking about when he talked about husband and wife relationships. Because as far back as 400 years before Paul was writing, lots of people, lots of philosophers, um, had a very strong sense of what household relationships should look like. Because household relationships in the ancient world were a place where the hierarchies in the rest of society were reflected. So Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, he wrote at length about how men should rule over their wives, their children, and their slaves. And actually, in Roman society, it was considered that that was an appropriate way of keeping peace, keeping order, keeping stability within the empire as a whole. It needed to be reflected at that smallest level in your own household. So... Paul is writing into a context where these household relationships already exist, and people are living within those contexts already. He clearly wasn't intending to say, doesn't matter anymore, do what you want, but he was writing in a context, and that was the particular context of the time. And so what he's doing is saying, these structures already exist, and you need to bring Jesus into those structures. You need to bring Jesus into those relationships and through those relationships to share Jesus with the world. So he's not making a point about whether men should rule over women any more than he's making a point about whether it's okay to bring slavery back in and reestablish it in the 21st century. He talks about the same, those two things in the same breath. He's not saying that one is good or bad or anything like that. What he's saying is bring Jesus into your, the relationships you already find yourselves in. Remember that verse at the start of the section, um, verse 17. He says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what's actually quite radical about what Paul is saying here isn't um, what he says to those who are in the more subservient position, women and children and slaves. Actually, the radical message of Paul here is what he says to those who hold positions of power. In this situation, it's men, it's masters, it's fathers, it's husbands. What he says to those people is unique. No one else makes a comment. Everyone else in the ancient world said it was fine for men to treat um, other people as property. But Paul has something radical to say. So let's look at verses 18 and 19 together. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Now, I find it interesting that there is a command here for men to love their wives. We might think that's a given. But remember, it's not marriage as we think of it. Actually, in the time, men could treat their uh, wives as property. But Paul is saying, no, you must love your wives. 
That's really important. And so with these two verses together, we can see that um, both husbands and wives are being told to consider the needs of the other, to consider the preferences of another, not just to think about themselves. That's how Paul is encouraging us to bring Jesus into our relationships, not to grasp at power, but to be humble. Sounds a bit like Jesus, doesn't it? Not to grasp at power, to be humble, to let go. Now, I haven't been married very long, so I don't have a lot of advice about marriage, and I'm sure many of you um, would have a lot more to say on this than I do, but one thing that I have learned in my marriage is that I am a lot more feisty and outspoken than my husband. He's very calm and kind and gentle, and I am not. So it's very easy for me, if we've got a disagreement, which we never do, we always do, um, to steamroll my way through the argument because I know that if I make a more of a fuss, maybe I cry a bit, maybe I shout a bit, you know, I've got my tips and tricks, then I can get my own way. But actually, I don't, I don't want that. I don't like that about myself. And I know that if I want to bring Jesus into our marriage, I need to be more patient, I need to be more gentle, and I need to be prepared not to always get my own way. And I hate that because I want my own way and I think it's the right way and I think my husband's wrong, but never mind. Um, enough about that. This isn't marriage therapy. But the point is... I find it really hard, and I think we all do, if we're being honest. We find it hard not to just think of ourselves and our own needs. And our culture encourages that of us, doesn't it? It says we should be at the center, we should get what we want, when we want, we should fight for it, no one should hold us back. But the problem with that, and those of us who are in any kind of relationship, not just a marriage relationship, will know that if we want to be in relationship with another person in any form, then we cannot always do that. We cannot always assert um, our way. We cannot always have our needs met at the expense of the other. If we are going to try to be like that, we will lose the relationship in some form or another. Either, either it will become an empty relationship or that person will walk away. We can't have it both ways. We need to learn to um, sacrifice. We need to learn to compromise. We need to learn sometimes to let go. And it's not just true. Like I said, it's not just true in marriages. Not all of us are married but we all are in relationship with someone that we love, be it a friend, a family member, neighbours, whatever. And, and the question I think that Paul is asking all of us is what does it mean not to assert that we should always get what we want? What does it mean to not hold a position of power over someone else and get and have our way and have our needs met all of the time? And it's a tricky balancing act because Paul's not saying, I don't think, he's not saying don't disagree, don't argue, don't express yourself. He's not saying that. Actually, what I think he's saying, and this is particularly relevant in the 21st century, is we need to learn to disagree well with the people that we love. Because if we can disagree well with the people that we love, then we can actually model something a bit different to the world. If you think about it, in the, in the world today, when we, when we see disagreements played out, it doesn't exactly go, politician A, well, I, um, I've got my opinion, I respect yours, I think that we could probably work together to reach a compromise. Politician B, very well put, Yes, I agree. Let's sit down and have a polite conversation about how we can reconcile our differences. 
Do we hear that? No, it's Twitter wars, isn't it? It's destroying one another. It's this person is a terrible person, that person is... You know, that's, that's the world that we live in. That's disagreeing in the world we live in. As Christians, we need to model something different, and we need to be prepared to talk openly and honestly with the people that we love when we disagree. But we also need to be prepared, and I think this is the hardest thing, to move from the position that we're in, position A, position B, there's a distance, there's a disconnect. We need to be prepared to take a step together so that we can reconcile our differences, so that we can stand together and not just asserting our, our way the whole time. And I think this is one way that Paul's words here are particularly relevant in our, in our culture and in our context. So Paul goes on to talk about children and their parents. So verses 20 and 21. He says, children... Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, if you're a parent, you probably want to stop there, not read on. But he does also say, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, again, we need to scratch below the surface, because what Paul isn't saying is children need to be completely subservient doormats. Actually, Paul's living in a culture where that was the expectation. That wasn't a radical thing that he was saying there. But he is saying something radical to parents, actually. He's saying something unique. And the Jesus bit is that parents can't treat their children however they want. That was the culture of the day that Paul was living in. Children could be disposed of. Children were property. You could treat children as they wished. And we struggled to get our heads around that because we live in an age where children have rights. We work hard to protect our children. We know that that's important. And even when that power gets abused at times, we see that as shocking and awful. That didn't happen back in Paul's time. And so what Paul is trying to say is children have dignity, children should be respected, children should be valued and listened to. And actually, isn't that what Jesus did? Jesus said, let the children come to me, don't stop them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Those are, that's the attitude of Jesus. So some of us are parents. What does it mean? What does it mean for us not to assert our power or our status or our size over our children? What does it mean not to say, well, I know best because I'm your mum, do what I say. I'm your dad, do, do what I say. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to respect you. I'm not going to, you know, those are the implicit messages at times. Those can have an effect on children, but we can sometimes avoid that because we have power and, and um, we have a position over them. So what does it mean to put Jesus at the center of our parent-child relationships? To not be about power and dominance, but about empathy and kindness and respect. So finally, we get to the third set of relationships. Um, we're looking at verse 22. This is what Paul says about slaves. I'm just going to read this section again for us. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not when the uh, eye is on you and to curry favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your servants with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. Now, at first glance, 
We might say, why, well, why have I read that whole section out again? We don't have slavery anymore, thank goodness. Slavery is gone in our society. It's been abolished for over 200 years. We don't need to worry about this passage. That may be true, but I think there are two things um, here that might be a challenge to some, if not all of us. And the first thing is about, if we remember what we looked at at the beginning, that Paul isn't trying to instigate a new social order here. He's talking about bringing Jesus into the relationships that you already have. So some of us here, in fact many of us, may be bosses, managers, employers. What's the challenge for us? How are we bringing Jesus into our working relationships? And Paul ends that section We all have a master in heaven. We're not the ultimate boss. Let's remember that. We're not the ultimate uh, chief. We all have a God in heaven who is above us. So when we treat our workers in a disrespectful or uh, an unkind way, actually that's that's not God's way. God sees that. God values that person as much as he values you or me. And so Jesus is supposed to be at the center of those relationships too. Are we reflecting him in the way that we treat um, others in our working lives? And are we showing Jesus in the way that we act? And the second point I want to make here is about the existence of slavery in our world. So I won't do a show of hands, but I'm going to assume here that none of us own a slave. That's good. But the painful reality is that every single one of us in this room has benefited from the existence of modern-day slavery in our world. And that might be in a car wash, it might be in a nail bar. Those are the places that we hear about on the news. But I want to ask you um, this evening, like this is, this is honest and I'm talking to myself as well, do I know who made this that I'm wearing? Do I know where my clothes came from and what conditions that person uh, was living in? How much they got paid? Was it right and fair what they got paid when they created what I'm wearing? Or what about the food that I eat? What about that chocolate that I've enjoyed this afternoon? Was it fair trade? If not, there was probably slavery involved in it in some way. That's the truth. That's the reality. We are all complicit, whether we like it or not, in slavery in our world today. So what does it mean to bring Jesus into those situations? It means researching, I think, where we get our stuff from, buying things more ethically, It means being aware of what is right and fair in our consumer choices. It might mean spending a bit more money because we can guarantee something is ethical. It might mean consuming less because we can't afford to keep up with that pace if we are going to buy things more ethically. It might be to choose second-hand products so that we can eliminate the effect that we are having in terms of um, slavery in our world. And that's hard. We live in a globalized world. We don't easily know where our stuff comes from or the conditions in which it was produced. But if Jesus is going to be at the center of our relationships, it has an effect on those choices too. It has an effect on our marriages. It has an effect on our relationships. It has an effect on our work lives, our parenting, and the choices that we make when we um, make consumer choices. So following Jesus requires a lot of us. It asks us to persevere, to keep going, even when things get tough. But when we do this, when we bring Jesus into all of these relationships, people will notice. The gospel will be proclaimed. I promise you, 
Because people will sit up and go, why? Why are you doing that? And it opens doorways into conversations. It lets the light of Jesus shine more brightly. And the good news is that if we identify with Jesus, we don't have to just have grit and determination for this to happen. Jesus already wants to be in our relationships. He already wants to transform the way we do things. He already wants to work and breathe and live within us so that we can know life in all its fullness. 